This evening we'll be reading from our Bibles in Psalm 97. This is found on page 687 in your pew Bible. We'll also be reading from Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism in the Forms and Prayers book. This is found on page 250. As we follow our catechism structure, we come to the tenth of the Ten Commandments, the commandment that forbids us from coveting. Uh, our catechism uh, deals with this uh, with a number of questions, which we'll get to in just a moment, uh, but we want to begin with a reading of Scripture from, from Psalm 97. We read there as follows, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Thus far, our reading from Scripture, we then turn to Lord's Day 44. It begins with question 113, asking, What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Question 114 asks, But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer, no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Question 115 Ask, since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? And the answer, first, so that all our life long, we may more and more come to know our sinful nature, and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you have probably had a similar experience to what I have had, uh, engage in conversation with an individual. Uh, and oftentimes there are, are two different types of individuals in which you will engage in conversation with. There's the individual uh, who, we might say, uh, goes around and around. Uh, he calls you. Uh, she stops by where you work. Uh, you meet them in the marketplace. And the conversation doesn't ever really seem to get to the heart of the matter. 
You may talk for five, maybe even ten minutes before they ask the question uh, that had motivated the phone call, or they bring up the subject that they really want to discuss. On the opposite end uh, is the one who lets it be known from his opening words what his matter of business is. Now, I suppose we all have our personal preferences, but I prefer the second. And our catechism in Lord's Day 44 takes the second approach. It gets right to the heart of the matter. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire, not even the slightest thought, contrary to any one of the commandments of God, should ever arise in my heart. And that is the heart of the matter. As we want to consider tonight with this theme, a proper desire for God. God would instruct us as his covenant people to show forth a life of thanksgiving by reminding us that we are to have a proper desire for God. That is the end, that is the goal, that is the purpose of our existence. That is the end, the goal, the purpose of God's redemptive work, uh, that is indeed uh, our desire. I want to look at this with three points again tonight. First of all, a radical desire to obey God, and then secondly, an imperfect desire to obey God, and then thirdly, a humbling desire to obey God. So a proper desire for God, a radical, an imperfect, and a humbling desire to obey God. First of all, then, a radical desire. The Tenth Commandment calls you and it calls me to a radical desire to obey God in the depth of our soul with the knowledge of God's character. Biblical religion is not interested in mere external confirmation to some code of, of ethics. And we must always be aware of a certain facade and boys and girls, you know what a facade is? Uh, you don't maybe know what the word facade means, but you know what a facade is. It, it's, it's the outer shell of a building. You can go down uh, the center there of Pala. Uh, you can go down some of the streets, and you can look at, at the buildings and uh, the fronts. Dutch fronts, they're called. False fronts, they're also called. Uh, they give a certain appearance that is very pleasant from the outside, but they in and of themselves don't really tell you much about what's on the inside of the store. There's always a danger of, of putting forth a facade, a facade of perhaps conservatism, that we just try to maintain uh, the things that have been done decades ago, or perhaps the facade of some external moralism. While we don't do those types of things, at least not in the presence of certain people, we don't do that in the company of our fellow parishioners. Or perhaps it's some facade of legalism, uh, the thinking that, boy, if I just do this, that, and the other thing, uh, then I am well and I am good. At least I am better than my neighbor. Uh, that is not true religion. True religion is a matter of the heart. And by heart, we mean that spiritual center uh, of a human person, the soul. And, and the Lord says, yes, certainly He wants us to avoid the externals of sin, but He looks even deeper. 
He desires our heart. He desires our very inner essence. And, and He desires within our heart that we would have a complete aversion to all manner and forms of sin. And this word aversion, I've chosen it purposefully because it means a strong feeling of dislike, repugnance. And repugnance is one of those words that it kind of sounds like, like what it means. And, and an illustration maybe, boys and girls, I can remember for, for some reason at times when I was growing up, at times there would be a glass of, of cold coffee on, on the kitchen counter. And, and I was young and maybe a bit impulsive, and, and, and I would look at this cup of cold coffee, and, and I would think that it was pop or soda, depending where you're from. And I was like, oh, because we didn't often have pop or soda in the house. I'd say, oh, somebody left some pop out, some soda. So I would go, and I would, I would take a sip and the minute it hit my tongue, I knew this is not pop, nor is it soda. This is cold coffee. And this was way before cold coffee drinks were popular. And instantly, I would spit it out in the sink. I could go back with another illustration. My father often talked about my grandmother making buttermilk pop. And even the smell of it, and maybe I'll offend some of the older generation uh, who enjoys such Dutch delicacies, even the smell of it, he said, was enough to drive him out of the kitchen and out of the house because it was repugnant. Couldn't stand it. That's what our Lord wants our heart's reaction to be towards sin. Not just avoiding it, but yet wanting it. Not just keeping it secret where no one else can see it. Keeping up appearances, but harboring in our soul a, a, a certain desire. I mean, it, it's one thing to, to avoid the external actions of sin, but, but what, what about my internal attitude towards sin? That's where the Lord ultimately looks. And He would desire that we have a complete repugnance towards any action, any thought, any desire that is contrary uh, to His will, to His law, to His Ten Commandments. And then on the positive side, uh, not that we would just be neutral or, or, or blank with our desires. It's not just some type of, if you can eliminate all desire, then you have somehow achieved the pinnacle of perfection. There are, there are false religions that believe that is the way forward. Uh, but no, there's also the positive. Uh, our Lord wills, our Lord's desire for us is that we would find delight in all righteousness so that we would look at sin and, and we would view it with a certain internal repugnancy and that we would find our greatest joy, our greatest delight, our greatest happiness in following our Lord's commands, and in keeping our Lord's commands. This is what uh, our Lord desires in the very depths of our soul. Well, well how do we begin to, to come to this desire? It is by a certain knowledge of God's character. And, and here, in our theology, 
Theology proper is always the first place to start with after you understand you know, the authority of Scripture, what we call prolegomena in the, in the various subjects of, of theology. But we begin with God. We, we don't begin with ourselves. And this grieves me at times because for the most part in the, the broad evangelical church, you hear so much about ourselves. Aren't we, aren't we a little bit tired of talking about ourselves in, in the broad church? This is so common that, that when you hear someone preach, emphasizing the, the majesty of God, the transcendence of God, it strikes you as odd. You go, this is different. There's something unique. And, and if you hear a, a preacher become stirred with passion and emotion about the glory and majesty of God, uh, you're, you're doubly mystified almost. I can remember recently I had the opportunity, the first time I've ever heard him in person, uh, to hear Dr. John Piper preach on Yahweh, the covenantal name of the Lord. And, and, and it wasn't about who we are it wasn't about, you're good, you're getting better, and with my help, you'll be the best yet. It was all about the majesty of, of Yahweh, the Lord. And you stood back and you said, this is refreshing. This is unique. We're not gathering ourselves together to give ourselves a little motivational self-esteem pep talk. We're coming into the presence of of the transcendent God. And so, this radical desire to obey God comes as I grow in my understanding of God's sovereignty. That God is God and He is the highest good. What do we mean by when we, when we say highest good? It's kind of a, a philosophical phrase that, that's worked its way throughout hundreds, if not thousands of years. But what do we mean by highest good? Young people, if I were to ask you, what is, the, what is the number one thing to live for? What is the number one thing you want? What is the number one thing that you think will bring you joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction, happiness, a sense of fulfillment? Whatever you answer in that one space, that's what you believe is your highest good. And I would submit to you, and not just to the young people, but to all of us, the only thing that can properly go in that space, what is, what is the one thing you long for, the one thing you desire, the one thing you want, the one thing that will make you content, satisfied, fulfilled, it is God. God Himself. Not just the benefits from God, although we are profoundly thankful for those benefits, but it's God Himself. Because He is sovereign, and He is holy, and He is good. That's why in Psalm 97, it's just one example, because so many of the Psalms have this, has this theme. Uh, the author of the Psalms doesn't reflect upon himself. He doesn't just kind of internally stir himself up to more positive outlooks on his life. How does he begin? The Lord reigns. You know, and maybe on some Monday mornings, that's where we need to begin. The Lord reigns. And maybe when the doctor calls sometimes with news that we didn't anticipate nor desire, maybe that's where we need to begin. The Lord reigns. 
And perhaps in various political seasons of our nation's history, we need to begin there. The Lord reigns. But notice that quickly then leads to the second line, let the earth rejoice. You notice the connection, right? Because A is true, the Lord reigns. B is the only logical reaction. Let the earth rejoice with this knowledge of God in the very depths of our soul. So this radical desire to obey God is something that applies to the depth of my soul as I come to an increasing knowledge of God's character. Well, then we can transition into our second point because we have set the ideal forth in point one, but now in point two we deal with reality. I remember, I think it was in middle school, my teacher at the time took us through different people's perspectives on life, and he talked about those who were optimist, the glass is always half full type of people, and he talked about those who were pessimist, uh, the glass is always half empty, and then he said, well, the third group are the realist, and they just tell everybody what the glass actually has in it. And, and you can think about later, don't think about it now, although it's probably inescapable, uh, think about later which characterizes your outlook on life. But our catechism takes the approach of an optimistic realism. An optimistic realism. It doesn't sugarcoat it. But it's not characterized by despondency. It begins with an experiential confession. Here we refer to this biblical subject matter condensed down into question 114. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? Notice how quickly they get to the heart of the matter. Can you keep these commandments perfectly? You've just described this wonderful ideal of a heart and a soul that is so consumed with the beauty of the majesty of God that you are characterized by a repugnancy towards all evil and you have a desire for all that is good. Can you keep that perfectly? And the answer is no. Then why ask the question? I, I, I can't do it. And, and maybe you sit here tonight and maybe over the past weeks, as we've gone through the commandments one by one, maybe that has been the, the constant refrain of your heart. I can't keep these commandments perfectly. This is where the catechism is pastoral. And that it begins with reality. But it does so in an optimistic way. No, it says, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. So there's a beginning. And that beginning is a result of God's grace, of God's transformative grace. And the work which God begins, he always brings to completion. That's his promise. And that promise is based upon his purpose and his power. 
God's purpose is to redeem His people completely, not partially. God's purpose is to save us completely from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, so that one day we will be presented without spot, without blemish, whole and complete in Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose. That's God's design. And God has the power, this is the other aspect of it, God has the power to always accomplish that which He purposes to do. I can't think of anyone, anything in the, the area here of, of Paula. I'm sure those of you who have more history of the, uh, of the area can think of a situation like this. I can think of a few in my hometown of a building project uh, that was started but never brought to completion. Sometimes something happened, uh, maybe a, a lack of funding. Quite often it seems that speculators come in and, and they're going to make an investment, but for whatever reason they haven't worked it all through, uh, and a housing development would go in, or, or maybe some office building would be started, and then the economy takes a downturn, and, and there lays a shell of a building. And as time goes on, the construction that had never been completed begins to become more and more dilapidated. I can think of an apartment building that, that stood near uh, Grand Valley University in Allendale, Michigan, and, and it had to sit there partially completed for, for 10, maybe even 15 years as a result of a, of a sharp economic downturn. Millions of dollars invested, but the project had never been brought to completion. Now the analogy breaks down because someone else came in when the economy turned around and, and they finished what the first company started. But here's my point. God never has that situation. He never begins His work in a certain person and then quits His work. He never gives up, and He's never frustrated. So here's the point. If you have a small beginning, you will have a glorious end. And that's a promise based upon the character of our redemptive Lord God. No, I can't keep these commandments perfectly. No, I'm not characterized by a consistent repugnancy towards evil. No, I don't desire the good in the way that I should. But the Christian, upon sober self-reflection, guided by the Scriptures, led by the Holy Spirit, can say this, I'm, I'm not what I one day will be, but I'm also not what I once was. And because I'm not what I once was, I know that one day I will be that which God has said I will be. Perfect, whole, complete. The theological explanation behind this uh, is definitive sanctification that leads into progressive sanctification. Definitive regeneration, and regeneration uh, means to be born again. Regeneration takes place when the Holy Spirit renews the soul, implants new spiritual life into the soul. And from that moment, 
that person who receives that regeneration, that new life as described by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3, that person becomes a new creature. There is something new inside of that person, the very life of Christ himself. So that person has died in Christ and has risen with Christ. And that seed is a seed that must and will continue to grow and to spread and to increase and the process of progressive sanctification that occurs all throughout one's life. So definitive sanctification happens in an instantaneous moment and it leads to a lifetime of progressive sanctification which always concludes with the wonderful glorification that comes when our life is complete. And ultimately, that comes when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns. So can you keep all these commandments perfectly? No, I can't. But I have the beginnings. And because I have the beginnings, I know I'll have the end. And I see that there is progression. No, not at the pace that I would desire. I wish, just like I'm sure many of you wish, you could be done with sin in an instant. But that's not God's plan. That doesn't give us an excuse to just sit in sin, but it does give us hope as we fight the good fight of faith. The work which God has begun, He will bring to completion. And this all leads into our third point, a humbling desire to obey God. If all of this is true, why then preach so pointedly? Question 115, since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? And and I really have to exercise self-restraint here because of time's sake, but also because of the subject matter. We, we, We could talk at length about what preaching is. But notice our catechism takes it as a given that preaching is pointed. For biblical proof of this, you can pick any sermon in the Bible, whether it's a prophet of old, whether it's an apostle in the new, whether it's John the Baptist, whether it's our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Preaching was pointed. What do I mean by pointed? Clear explanations of the Scriptures. Not vague, not philosophical speculations, but clear explanations of the Scriptures, how the Scriptures pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Preaching, preaching must be understandable. It must be simple. It must be clear. And it must, of all things, be based upon Scripture. But there's more to it than just that. Preaching applies the truth of Scripture to the person, to the person's very heart. That's why especially you find in the apostles that there's always this transition. You can think of Paul. You can read through the book of Acts. Uh, He goes into the synagogue or he goes into the community 
and, and he expounds a certain Old Testament prophecy, and he, he points out how it points to the, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then he doesn't just say amen and leave it in some vague, abstract concept, but he comes with a personal application. Now, therefore, repent and believe. He takes the text, as it were, and he puts it on the person's heart. And he says, now you need to respond to this truth. You need to do something with this truth. You need to wrestle with this truth. You need to be confronted with this truth. Now, he, he does so, of course, with, with pastoral love and concern, but he does so with a certain energy. And this is what preaching is. And it's not just some, some man in a charismatic way giving an emotional outburst of, of verbiage for 30 minutes, but rather we trust that proper preaching is when the Holy Spirit employs a man and gives him a certain fire in his soul to make known the truth of the Word of God and to bring it to bear upon the hearts of the hearers. The Apostle Paul says before the preaching there is a dual aroma, a dual savor, a dual scent, if you will. There is the scent of life unto life. But there is also the scent of death unto death. And, and this comes before the pulpit. Some go from life unto life underneath pointed preaching. And, and others, they, they go from death unto death in front of pointed preaching. But preaching must be pointed. As it, in this context, uh, as it explains the meaning of the commandments. But, it, but if we can't keep them, why preach them so pointedly? Why tell us the goal if we can't ever attain the goal? Well, because you can't attain the goal in this life, but you will attain the goal and the life that is to come, especially so that through the preaching of the law, you would pursue grace, that you would pursue the grace that comes by the Holy Spirit. After you hear a commandment preached, you don't want to leave saying, oh, I guess none of us can ever attain that, so who cares? But rather we ought to leave saying, Lord, give me grace. Give me forgiving grace. And give me enabling grace. So as you think, as we've gone through these commandments... Beginning, of course, with commandment one, we worked our way through the first four commandments, dealing with the first table of the law, love towards God. And then we made our way through the second table of the law, the next six commandments. May I seriously ask, did you leave our gatherings echoing the words of Luke 18, verse 13? Oh God, be merciful to me the sinner. Did you leave that way? If so, that's good. That's the way we should leave. Remember, there were two men who came to the temple to pray in that parable our Lord gave us. And only one man went home justified. And it wasn't the man who complimented himself on his law-keeping. It was the man who said, God, be merciful to me, 
the sinner. Did you leave our meetings echoing what David said in Psalm 51 verse 10? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or did we leave just with a flippant manner? Check our box and other Sunday service. Ah, the preacher did what he was supposed to do. The accompanist did what they were supposed to do. The deacons did what they were supposed to do. Nothing was new. Nothing was out of line. A good Sunday. It has to be more than that. Create in me, O oh God, a clean heart. And he will. But God is a God who uses means to accomplish his ends, and God ordains the, the means. God will perfect his people, but he will perfect his people by bringing them pointed preaching that causes them to cry out, Lord, forgive, and Lord, cleanse. And then the Lord does forgive, and the Lord does cleanse. And again, I say that the catechism takes the biblical approach of being a realistic optimist. Notice how question and answer 115 ends. Until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. It doesn't say just strive and we'll see what happens. But it says strive because the goal that will certainly be attained is perfection. So is your testimony tonight that you have a small beginning? Then I want to remind you that there is a coming day of perfection, of glory. And I want to encourage you not to become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. That was an old saying, what that meant, boys and girls, that there were, there were some people that were overly spiritual. And, you know, and so instead of doing what they were supposed to be doing in their normal vocational labors, you know, they would say, well, I'm, I'm studying the Bible. I can't work today. Well, it's your bedtime. Well, I, I, I need to read a Bible story. It's not my bedtime. I need to read a Bible story. Well, there's times to read the Bible stories, and there's time to go to bed. Don't be so heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. But in your doing of earthly good, remember, there is a coming perfection. You desire that? Do you long for that? Then I assure you, that day will come. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word and for speaking not just to the external conduct of our lives, but speaking to our hearts. Lord, as we have considered your commandments, your will, your law for our life, we pray that we might see the beauty of your law, that we would also see the beauty of you yourself, the lawgiver. And as we see your beauty, we also pray, Lord, that you would work within our heart that work of grace, that we would have the beginnings of new obedience, that we would not be uh, deceived in thinking that we have attained perfection, but may we also know that there is an attaining of perfection that is awaiting 
the conclusion of our earthly pilgrimage through this life. Uh, So grant us the grace to acknowledge our sin, to embrace the wonderful reality of the forgiveness of our sin, and with sincerity of heart to press on in the Christian life. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.